Merry Christmas. So uh, this show, in the spirit of peace on earth and goodwill toward men, uh, we will be talking a little bit about friends, uh, since, of course, uh, friendship is, is uh, sort of uh, the, the wellspring from which all peace on earth and, and goodwill toward men flows, no? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm reaching. So at any rate, um, two very good friends of mine are featured in this uh, in this episode, one directly, one indirectly. Um, one of them you've met, his name is Hunter Hetfield. Uh, he interviewed with us uh, a few episodes back, and he surprised me just before heading out of town for the holiday uh, with a wonderful leather-bound book of classic American short stories. Um, so we'll talk a little bit of more about that in the episode. Uh, he, he chose a really good quote from um, the uh, book, from a book that I re recommended to him. I uh, really like it. So the other very good friend uh, is a former colleague of mine, um, also a friend for life. Uh, his name is Ben King. And uh, we served together in Afghanistan, and uh, he's just a wonderful guy. And he agreed after having dinner with my wife and I uh, to head over to um, Morning Times Coffee Shop uh, late uh, one night and do an interview. So we did it, and he will be in the show. So um, that said, we should probably head right into that show right now. Hey, it's in a book. Welcome back. I am Lawrence Rouse. I am in Raleigh, North Carolina, and you are listening to It's in a Book. We are a fortnightly podcast dedicated to all things books. And this fortnight, uh, just one day after Christmas, we are recording. Uh, we are focusing on a short story as opposed to a book. But it is in a magnificent leather-bound collection of uh, short stories, uh, classic American short stories given to me by a very good friend. Uh, his name is Hunter Hetfield, uh, which is also the focus of this episode, uh, Friendship. Uh, the interview will be with a very good friend of mine. His name is Ben King, a wonderful guy, sort of uh, jack-of-all-trades, uh, soon-to-be master of... Uh, of the medical profession, um, but I think it's all going to amount to a, a very good episode. Ben and I interviewed about a week and a half ago. I've really been dawdling with regard to getting this up on the internet, but today, this one day after Christmas, uh, we will certainly make sure that uh, it's up by midnight. So, uh, won't have a lot of lead in. Uh, I think I talked you to death already during the uh, during the lead, so we'll keep this short. And we will return right after the break with an interview with Ben King. See you then. Okay, so our interview this fortnight is uh, with a very good friend of mine, former colleague of mine. His name is Ben King. Uh, we worked together on a uh, Special Forces ODA, and uh, 
I'm not going to talk about him too much. I'm going to let him do that uh, for himself. I've already familiarized Ben with the five questions we'll be discussing tonight. Of course, the surprise question uh, is, <laughs> wish you could see his face right now. Ben, uh, tell us about yourself. <laughs> well, hello, Lawrence and readers. Um, listeners, I guess. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I used to be Lawrence's boss. <laughs> He's tricked me on to coming to this and talking about books. Yes, I'm a North Carolinian. Uh, Where were you born? Not North Carolina. Not North Carolina? Berlin, Germany. Berlin, Germany. I'm a Cold War baby. Nice. Uh, West Berlin, not East. uh, (laughs) It would have had to smuggle you out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, then uh, military brat joined the military myself uh, had a good time and now uh, moving on to the future yeah yeah sweet sweet so uh, Ben uh, since he's been so reticent over there he just uh, just finished his undergrad degree at UNC Chapel Hill um, he's uh, hopefully he's going to be working with me for a little while while he finishes up uh, get, getting set up for uh, for PA school or uh, or whatever else uh, you know the world may throw at him. We, you know about the best laid plans of, of mice and men, but uh, he we had a really really wonderful time together uh, when we worked uh, as a team as a medical team in addition to uh, you know being on a team of shooters uh, in Afghanistan. We, we had a pretty unique situation going where we were the only clinic, uh, only medical care available for miles and miles. So we, we really got to see a lot and do a lot. And uh, it, it was really good having uh, somebody with Ben's cool head there to kind of, uh, kind of keep, me, uh, keep me honest and grounded. I, I tended, I have pretty great bedside manner, but, uh, but I'm, I'm excitable sometimes. And, and Ben was, uh, was always cool headed and, uh, and, and clinical. So, uh, but uh, since he's, uh, he, you should see him over there. He looks so shy right now. That's, that's not something I'm used to seeing from him. <laughs> well, we'll get well, right. I, I think it's the reverse of that. I think you were cool-headed. I guess I was clinical, but only for about an hour before I got, I got tired and needed my nap. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. He was, he was great over there. Um, but we will we will get into the interview now. I'm not I'm not gonna make him uh, you know I'm not gonna torture him, uh, making him tell you all about Afghanistan or Kuwait or any other of the places we ended up together. Um, so, I, you, do you remember the questions? No. Vaguely. Vaguely. I forgot them. Good. Good. I was hoping you would. So the first question is this. Um, I don't even think I even <laughs> registered them. <laughs> it's a busy world these days. Uh, how do you find the time to read? Well, as a student, going back and getting my undergrad, I've been forced to read. Right. <laughs> uh, and I chose history as my major, and I've always loved history. And I guess I grew up in a family, uh, which I'm grateful for, that exposed me to books early. So I grew up with uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and uh, Bernard Cornwell and a lot of historical fiction, right. as well as science fiction. Uh, and I, I always enjoyed reading on the side, and once I got into into college, uh, you know, you can't just use Wikipedia as your sources. <laughs> so I had to go to the library and and find some out. So certainly, when I uh, 
would choose a, a thesis for my my paper. Uh, like I wrote one about uh, Mobutu and Zaire, and, uh-huh. and it was supposed to be about the 1970s, but I found myself reading only about the 1960s uh, in a book by uh, a ex-CIA guy, Larry Devlin, uh, uh-huh. chief of station in Congo. Uh, and I really couldn't even make it to the, the time period in which I was supposed to write about. Just because the rest of it was so interesting? The 60s were way more interesting than the 70s. In fact, the 70s were flat out depressing. Right. But the 60s were some, some of the most interesting reads I've, I've ever encountered. And so it was, it's, it's less about when I have time to read for myself. It's more about when I have time to read... Uh, for what I'm supposed to read uh-huh. for, I guess. <laughs> and every everything, uh, I just wrote a paper about Sweden's uh, Charles XII. If you don't know about him, he's... I don't. What? It's ridiculous. It's the uh, antithesis to the Sweden that we know today. You'd never even believe it if right. I told you about so it. So they weren't neutral at all, huh? No, they, they had their no, hand in every, but, every pot? But Voltaire wrote... Uh, practically a first-hand account, only 15 years after the death of Charles XII. Really? Carl, Carl Gustav is his name. You may know Carl Gustav. I, yes, I do know Carl Gustav. the rocket launcher. Right. <laughs> but uh, Carolus Rex, uh, Carl XII, Charles XII. The Voltaire's account, which I'd learned after I got my grade back, is an unacceptable form of history and should be read more as entertainment. Right. Voltaire was a satirist, so I but I, I, couldn't, was... I couldn't put it down. It right. Was, uh, hey, I love Voltaire, man. It he... was too funny. Yeah. And History of Charles XII by Voltaire, I think it was his first historical piece and one of his least successful, but... Right. Uh, he, pure comedy. He was super successful after the fact, I think. Yeah, this was Voltaire. written in the 1730s, and he didn't get big until... Uh, 1750s, I think. Right, right. So, uh, so I guess I find the time to read. Uh, I try to read whatever Lawrence recommends uh-huh. when I can, <laughs> and I always try to set aside at least 15 minutes to read something right. somewhere. Wait, is is that like a particular time of day when you try and set that aside, or just usually kind of at night? Catch as catch can usually at, at night. night. Catch catch me as I can, but. Uh, I always try to do it. Right, right. That's good. That's good. It's a good thing to do. It's something I wish I was able to do these days. Um, lately, uh, it, it's very, very much catch as catch can. So, sweet. Well, we'll move on to uh, question number two, and I think you you probably touched over it a little bit. But uh, the second question is, uh, how do you decide what to read? And and I know as a student that was somewhat dictated, but uh, in general, how do you decide what to read? Well, it's like I said, it's whatever Lawrence tells me. Uh, I generally, I generally, me. I give Thank it, a, I give it a shot. Right. Uh, I also, uh, you know, I try to go through the top lists of the hundred greatest books, or, and I'm always trying to knock out the classics. Right. I always take a peek at uh, bestsellers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever uh, Rush Limbaugh's writing these days. <laughs> Just just kidding. Always a bestseller, but... (laughs) It always is. It's crazy. I don't know about the quality. uh, Well, he just apparently wrote one about uh, George Washington or something. Really? Not going to read it. Though I'll tell you what was good. Um, Who's the... uh, Uh, Oh, uh, 
He did the JFK and the the Lincoln, but killing Lincoln, killing Kennedy. I'm not familiar with him. I thought you were going to say uh, uh, Newt Gingrich because no, he no, writes no. historical he, this fiction. This is a right? Fox News pundit, um, Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly. I read okay. Killing Lincoln and and Killing Kennedy, and I were they good? Really good. Right. Really good. I can believe that. I mean, you know, he's he's reached a. a Position of some success, it, it can be because he's a, he's a total moron. Um, so yeah, but uh, so I try to check the lists. I try to knock out the classics. Right. Um, and then if something piques my interest, you know, you never know what can can spur your interest. I I stumbled across a Bill Bryson book. I think it's the short history of leisure. Right. Uh, I've, I've heard of that. I haven't read it. You know, I've never read anything about Bill Bryson, in fact. But I, as, the as walk I understand in the it, wood, he's the walk in the woods is all right. I've always wanted to do the Appalachian Trail, so it's is that what that's about? It's good to see a novice's uh, stance on it. Right. He, some, uh, is he a novice on anything though? Isn't he, isn't he kind of? He was. A, he's a hiking novice. Certainly. Oh, okay. Okay. He's a, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, sometimes you just. Stumble across something and it just catches your attention. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I am these days. I mean, I have a very, very big list of, of books uh, that I hope to read one day, and, and every once in a while, I, you know, delve into it for for a title. But uh, often it's just kind of whatever whatever happens to roll along. Yeah, uh, Gaddis's the recognition says. <laughs> yeah, that that's an incredible book. It's not finished yet. Yeah, you got to finish it. It's, uh, it. I'm getting there, man. I just yeah, uh, yeah. It, I mean, it's thick. It, it's meaty. It's like oatmeal, but uh, but it is. I mean, it, very very rewarding in my opinion. Generally, um, listeners, uh, whatever Lawrence recommends is really good. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. But I, it, along that line, uh, not not to uh, you know, uh, we'll we'll move on quickly from here. But but Ben uh, picked up the coup tonight at my house, and I'm I'm so excited about you reading that, especially because you have sort of a, a natural interest. I mean, you you've traveled to Africa, you you've worked there as a missionary and, and otherwise. Um, I think you will be really tickled pink by the coup. Uh, Updike really really uh, paints a, a pretty. Uh, uh, satirical and, and funny picture of a, of a deposed African dictator. Yeah, well, my my history focus was global contemporary, and uh, my graduation thesis, not not uh, an undergraduate thesis, was uh, about uh, Zaire in the seventies. So uh-huh. there were uh, no shortage of coups. In the 60s and 70s. You are going to love so the crew. I'm certainly looking forward to uh, to uh, a novelistic approach to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Updike, he, he's, you know, I, I, I took issue with with a few things he wrote toward the end of his life, but I mean, you know, he was older. And, and, yeah, uh, I've only read his uh, short stories. Yeah, yeah I, we, we won't talk about it anymore, but uh, I can't wait until you finish. You, you need to call me. After you read the last word, and, and we'll have a good talk about it. Um, All right. I've, I've read it at least twice, so yeah, right. Yeah, it's worth it. So, okay, well, we'll move on to the third question, uh, which is is kind of a, a multi-question, multi-question, whatever. Uh, it's the Leatherman of questions. Um, so it's this. Um, just tell me a little bit about how you feel about books as objects. Uh, do you prefer paper or digital? How, how many books do you have? How many? How many would you like to have? That sort of thing. Uh, so, books as objects. Have at it. 
I was reading uh, New York Times online and the real estate section, and there's a $119 million house for sale in downtown New York. And I was scrolling through the slideshow, and they had this this incredible staircase that winds into a circular spiraling study slash walk-in bookshelf and I and something I've always wanted in in my own house and I I collect I certainly try to collect books but uh, I, I uh, you know I, I just uh, don't don't have the space to set up what I'd like right now right. so and then I also remember being in a church service one time and a pastor was using an iPad with the Bible on it and I remember being <laughs> a little offended really so but I don't know why but I, I think that I certainly appreciate uh, the object the book itself right uh, especially having to write so many um, bibliographies mm. where you have to look at the publisher and the date right, it just right. makes you appreciate it yeah. even more all the work that went into that and uh, and I my father was appraising a set of his father's books I forget the explorer author he wrote a hundred and something books about exploring the United States in the early 19th century. Yeah, I forget his name, but we appraised. I have some of those books. We appraised uh, this. I didn't appraise it. Somebody appraised it at uh, uh, close to two thousand dollars. Right. Um, yeah. And you know they're a very very old set, and we also have a set of some um, original um, leather-bound Kipling books. Mm, mm. Um, so it's just something that we've always passed down in our family. Right. Good books. I think I'm. My copies of The Hobbit are uh, were my father's when he was uh, when he was young, and um, one day my copies of Harry Potter will be my children's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just kidding about that last one. It, my my Holden's copies of, of Harry Potter will be will have been mine. And is it? I mean, I, I love my my uh, my digital media device. I don't know. Will we get sued if we say the name? No, 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 no one listens to this podcast. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, but I've I've given it to my sister. Right. Deplo- Your nook. Yeah, she's deployed right now and in a helicopter. Lawrence had to hook me up. Slaying bad guys. She's reading in a helicopter. Uh, is that good? Is that, I guess reading it all is good. <laughs> Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, as long as you're reading. Right, right. Um, so she, so in her case, she can't really bring books over there. So it helps right. to have a digital database. So I guess I certainly appreciate the object, but it can be situational. Yeah, yeah. Kristen has that same concern. She she worries, you know, especially with with. Uh, I mean, one of the the, the most wonderful things about. Uh, any sort of digital media is how quickly you know it changes. Um, so she wonders if we'll be able to pass on the digital books that we that we currently have to Holden and, and to Catherine, our daughter. And and it's a legitimate concern. I mean, already you know we've seen various devices 
disappear, and I've seen at least one format that's no longer in use. So it's it's the kind of a big disc. deal. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not the floppy disk. I mean, I mean one digital media format. But yes, I was here for the floppy disk, I, 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 and I was I've I was an adult for the floppy disk. You've only heard about it. it it was trouble. No, I, I saw it one time. You saw it one time? Ha, ha, ha. The young, the young, and their youthful pride. So, um, so okay. So, we'll, we'll, uh, I'd like your answer to that. We'll, we'll move on to uh, our fourth question, our, the penultimate question here. It seems like the, I had something else to say about your answer to, uh, to that third question. Oh, and I, I promise anyone who, who uh, is unfortunate enough to be listening and was also unfortunate enough to be listening last week uh, or last fortnight, um, I'll stop mentioning this eventually, but Walter Mosley um, wrote like a, a sci-fi novel, uh, I think it was in the late 90s, where he talked about um, digital reading. And as in, in this sci-fi world, as digital reading became more and more interactive, it was such that the, the reader, uh, the human reader, was doing less and less, and the computer was doing more and more. So in this future that he envisioned, only a few people were left who actually knew how to read books. You know? and, and that's the concern I have with regard to, to digital media. You know? I mean, as we rely more and more on computers to do everything, you know, I mean, I oftentimes now find myself when I have to do long division or when I have to do, you know, any any sort of complex, uh, you know, multiplication and, and uh, even addition or subtraction. Yeah, <laughs> I mumble that. Um, you know, just thinking this is way harder than it used to be because I, I no longer do those things. You know, I rely on computers and calculators to do all those things for me. And, and so as reading becomes something that the computer does for us more and more, you know, I mean, yeah, it'll never be the case that we don't, there aren't people who know how to read, but it could end up that it's the provenance of, of an elite subset of our, our population. And, and I think that would be a very, very bad thing. So Certainly advanced interpretation of a, of a book is be I think is probably becoming I'm not gonna say obsolete, but few and far between. Uh, but I I don't think I can ever compare the satisfaction I get out of reading a good story, or even a, a historical essay or um, a first-hand uh, primary document from a from a historical source. I'll never compare that to any sort of mathematics. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's a certain pleasure in, in, uh, in long division. You know? There's no pleasure. <laughs> and if you take pleasure in it, shut off your computer. Well, you, that's just because you just got done, you know, fighting chemistry and, and biology and all that. But there is a, a certain pleasure in long division. I I'll steadfastly maintain that. Um, so, okay, the fourth question uh, is, what is your favorite book of all time? And, and I, re I realize that's a difficult question, and, and you know, you, you may not corner it right now, but, uh, but think about it and, and let me have uh, whatever you come up with. Just one? You can talk about whatever you want to talk about now that the question's out there. Okay. Well... I moved around so much when I was younger. I, I constantly used The Hobbit mm -hmm. 
as my book report, and I I went to eleven <laughs> schools in twelve years, so I just changed. Cheater. I changed the. Uh, I changed the format. I guess I would try to upgrade it to from six grade of your teachers seven hears grade. This. But it's not entirely cheating. Uh, it's uh, making the best out of. Of a bad situation, all yeah. that moving. Yeah, I'll go. So, I'll go for that. I'll always. Uh, and I guess it wasn't until I read a biography of Tolkien that I would say that's my favorite book. But right. I guess sometimes I insert the biographical data of the author into the work itself. Right. Uh, and in this case, it kind of downgraded the Hobbit for me. Yeah, so tell me, I, I, you know, as much as I love C.S. Lewis, and I've read almost everything he's written, um, and he and Tolkien were, were very, very good friends. What, what is it about? I don't, I don't know much about, about Tolkien, oh, or Tolkien. I don't know much about their relationship. Right. I know, I know that Tolkien... What is it about him that downgrades The Hobbit for you? Uh, well, during, I think it was, he, he wrote him during World War One, and he... I don't know. You, can, you should read the book because I don't want to be quoted on uh, what sort of PhD he had, but it was something along the lines of philolinguistics, which he, while well, his friends went off to fight World War One. Right. So he he stayed home which and was studied a, philology was, while they fought. Yes. So, More or less, and and he made it eventually. Uh, right. C.S. Lewis was a philologist as well. I don't I don't know if he fought either. C.S. Lewis was older. Yeah, okay, so he w- wasn't called. He huh? was older. And C.S. Lewis was, a, I believe, a professor of medieval history or literature. He, he was a, a man of several hats. Yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, I think Tolkien's book is incredible, and it, it uh, opened the gates to a lot of yeah, I mean, science it's, fiction. Right, it's, it's the basis of fantasy, you know, as we know it today, I think. And I, but, and I always, I generally try to not insert the biography of the author into their work. Right. Um, so, and I mean, that's, I try not to do that with Hemingway. And I, I think Farewell to Arms and The Sun Also Rises right. are some of my favorites. As somebody who's, who's been to war and loved somebody during a war, uh, and somebody who's been on a weekend soiree that got out of hand, uh-huh. uh, which are practically the some plots of both of those books, respectively. I think Hemingway and his um, writing style is just pretty bare. Right, yeah, I, sparse. Very sparse. But I, uh, elegant, though. But those two books always stand out as some of my favorites. Uh, then the Faulkner's uh, Sound and the Fury. Uh-huh. I think uh, having embraced my southern heritage, right, it's it led me down uh, a personal and historical uh, acceptance of the past. And, right. Uh, right. And appreciation um, for what we have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book is about the demise of a wealthy Southern family, which occurred in my family, as it did in most families in the South. Right. Um, if it wasn't in the Civil War, it was during the Great Depression. Right, right. Um, but I'd say right now, 
Um, my favorite book is going to be uh, Robert Olmsted's Cold Black Horse. Cold Black Horse. Cold. Cold Black Horse. Cold Black Horse. Got you. It's a fa- heard of fairly it. recent publication. He's still living. Uh-huh. It's a Civil War book. Right. It's a historical fiction about a, a, a young man's journey into war, mm-hmm. uh, search for his father, and uh, I guess like like most honest books about war, and it's about what you find out about yourself and uh, about the nature of the society around you. Right. Um, Worth a good read. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You remind me to write that down um, when we're finished here. Uh, or I, I guess I don't have to write it down. I can just listen. Plus, I, I like a good <laughs> I like a good animal character in the book. The horse doesn't talk. Good. He doesn't talk. <laughs> uh, but but you certainly well, so you certainly love the horse. He's so you you become pretty intimate with the horse over the, over the course of the book. Absolutely. Boat. He's right. the reason that uh, the boy makes it where he's supposed to go. Right. Right, coal black horse, huh? Sounds good. Sounds it's really good. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever I hear someone talk about, uh, uh, you know, what you find out about yourself going to war or joining the military or whatever, I always think about the uh, the first night of, of land nav. Um, you know, during the uh, during the SFQC. And I remember, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in the country. I grew up walking around in the woods. I mean, I, I was walking around in the woods, coming across poisonous snakes before I was, you know, old enough to know not to pick them up. But uh, I just remember that first night, man. You know, it was, it was like midnight. You you have this pack on your back, you oh, know, yeah. and you're you're all alone. And I, and I just remember wondering, you know, what I might run into out there. And, and I remember, you know, even though I knew that it was... Uh, that it was meta, a metaphorical, metaphysical sort of supposition and reckoning. You were physically safe, more right, or less. Right, but I, you know, I just remember it, it was a it was a strange time in my life, you know, and, and a strange series of, of events in my life. Uh, not strange. I mean, as normal as as you know, any and all human events, and, and certainly as unique since they happen to us uniquely. Um, but I just remember being afraid that I would run into myself out there more so than anything else you know but in fact I did and you know and I, and I came to terms with with, uh, with that self and uh, and I was able to move on you know yeah I think that kind of catharsis is what I enjoy most about a good book and what you're talking about when you're all alone certainly reminds me of a book I forgot to mention that has always impacted me since about middle school and it's uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness mm-hmm. which has always meant something to me and uh, what what do you do when someone's not watching you right right um, yeah so what do you do just try to have integrity <laughs> I know I, I always tease it I always tease it so and you do you do I've, I've seen it with my own eyes um, so, I, I, yeah, your, your parents can be proud of you. Right. Gotta remember where you come from. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Last question: What are you reading right now? 
Oh, let's see. I picked up, uh, well, nothing. Nothing? Are you are you kind of on a hiatus right now? I, I just you... graduated college. Right. Congratulations, by the way. I um, I have nothing to read right now. Right. Well, you're going to enjoy the coup, which you picked up tonight. I guess that's what I'm reading. <laughs> Perhaps that's why I so eagerly grabbed it. Did you finish The Man Who Loved Children? I did finish that. What, tragic, but, but strangely satisfying, no? It was satisfying. It was very, it was, um, it took me long enough, so I had almost forgotten the beginning of it. Right. Uh, Sneed did a good job making you despise the parents. Right, Sam and Henny were, were despicable. They're despicable. But Sam seemed to me a little more so than Henny. Like, Henny, and, and granted, she was a, she was a scoundrel, you know, like, she was a mess, she was a wreck, but... I don't know. There was something a little noble about her too. There was something that that I, I mean, maybe you know, I, maybe it's because she was a woman or whatever. And and I'm, it, what, what's I guess the opposite of a chauvinist? Like I, I think I always take the the female side as, as opposed to the male side. But you know, like I, I think I loved Henny a little bit by the end of the book. You know, and and therefore I kind of like, I, you know, I probably would have kicked Sam's ass. You know, like because I loved Henny. I guess. Yeah. I think you take the opposite. Uh, no, I, I didn't like any <laughs> or maybe of Maybe you're just fair. <laughs> I didn't really like I just kind of finished it. Um, I guess I'm also reading, I forgot I have a... I always like to throw in some Roman history and uh-huh. I'm reading about Constantine. And, uh, and then... Um, no, you know, I'm sorry. That uh, Sneed book... It was good, but I forgot the beginning. By the yeah. time I got to the end, right, it's right. so long. It's it's a big book. It's a big, big book. Um, it, it's kind of like the recognitions. And, that. and I also this was, was my fr- problem with Faulkner the first time I read it was uh, when you when you create a babbling language, right? It I don't like it. It took, do I. it took me two times to read The Sound of Fury to appreciate it, and I still don't like book one. Right. Um, and so that uh, babble of some of the children. Yeah, yeah, that, that strange talk. It made it hard to keep, to keep on reading. Yeah, yeah, I detest that. And, and slang even more so, you know? I mean, like, I think it's enough for the Arthur to say, hey these people talk in this strange way and then to allow the reader to you know uh, interpret that just with the Arthur just occasionally giving the cue that that it's still occurring you know but to actually try and onomatopoeically spell it out um, it can sometimes be really really annoying so yeah so well you made it man Um, I think uh, I think Ben got a little nervous when I when I told him uh, we were going to do the interview because I think he thought it was going to be a little more formal than this. And being the I'm in a suit. <laughs> he's wearing a suit right now, and he's he's a, a, a very very prepared person in, in general. And so I think he uh, he thought it was going to require a little more preparation. I, I saw him. Well, I wish I was reading a book right now. 
you don't no, have I think, to. I just, you're, you're a, a, I just finished a voracious reader. Voltaire's <laughs> The History of Charles XII, and I gotta give Voltaire a shout out. Yeah, uh, dude. You just, have you read Candide and Sadiq? Uh, no. Yeah, um, I I wish I could remember what those two mean, but you gotta read Candide and Sadiq. Um, Are they his prose? Yeah, yeah, they're they're uh, yeah. they're both they're tiny little. I'm just gonna end Can't Voltaire, call them novels, no. um, but. But they're, uh, I mean, they're satire, certainly, pros, but, uh, yeah, yeah they're, they're good stuff. I've, I've read both of those multiple times. Um, so, well, um, I guess uh, we should point out that we're sitting in morning times. Uh, it's about uh, nine, about five, five minutes after nine uh, on a, on a, what Tuesday? is it, Wednesday, Tuesday? Tuesday? Tuesday night. Yeah. Tuesday or Wednesday night. Um, so, thanks to morning times uh, for the, the ambient noise. Uh, they provided tonight and uh, thanks to, to Ben King my very very good friend uh, for, for agreeing to interview and this will uh, this will be on the web not being listened to by anyone uh, before you know it Ben so. yeah thanks uh, Oak City Reads for having me out tonight thanks Lawrence Rouse and the Rouse family Rouse Company <laughs> LLC yeah alright let's uh, let's go get some beer man and get in the hot tub alright sounds good <laughs> alright good night The Gift of the Magi, O. Henry. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it, one dollar and eighty-seven cents, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it. Which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below, was a letter box into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to twenty, the letters of Dillingham looked blurred, as though they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim, and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you. Estella.
which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day to dry, just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now, Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again, nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still, while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket. On went her old brown hat. With the whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sifroni, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sophroni. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. 
Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made, and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair, away down on the first floor, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow. He was only twenty-two, and to be burdened with the family. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face.
Della wiggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? asked Jim, laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone, he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy, be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden serious sweetness. But nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year, what is the difference? A mathematician or wit would give you the wrong answer. The magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that can make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the lord of the flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair they were expensive combs she knew and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession and now they were hers but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone but she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? 
I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest. Everywhere they are the wisest. They are the Magi. And there it is, the end of the second of our two fortnightly episodes for December. Thank you very much for coming along to listen. Uh, I hope you had a wonderful and very merry Christmas, uh, or if you celebrate uh, another holiday, Kwanzaa, uh, Hanukkah, um, I think that covers it for, uh, for this time of year. Certainly, I hope... Uh, your holiday was was beautiful and and all that you uh, wanted from it as well Um, uh, thanks again to uh, Ben for interviewing and Hunter thank you so much for the uh, for the book that you gave me for Christmas Uh, I'm gonna read the uh, inscription here Um, it is from Mark Helprin's A Soldier of the Great War, which is uh, just a really incredible book. Hopefully uh, someone will hear this and read it and uh, join the fraternity of of Hunter and myself uh, and anyone else who's read the book. Um, The quote goes as follows. uh, Niccolo would find it disappointing by the slow and difficult. But Alessandro had learned to love these as much or perhaps more than he loved the fast and easy. To him, they seemed not so far apart. It was almost as if, facing off invariably at odds, they conducted a secret liaison with their hands enwrapped under the table. Now, I do believe, it's been a while since I read this book, that uh, he is talking about the alpine climbing that uh, Alessandro and uh, Niccolo um, did together. Um, they they became friends. If they are the uh, the two characters that I'm thinking of, I'm gonna have to check with Hunter on this. I'm, I'm probably mangling it terribly, but um, at any rate, I like the the quote. It brings the book 
back to me a little bit. I, I laugh because uh, I'm stumbling over it there. But the overall feeling that uh, that book leave, leaves one with is, uh, is one that I can begin to describe. Um, and of course is the reason Mark Helper wrote it in the first place because he can begin to describe it. He, he had to uh, describe it over many, many pages and, and many, many months of, of toil. Um, so uh, thanks again, Hunter. Thanks again, Ben. And uh, Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. So one final note, I think I'm going to have to give up on the on the coffee shop uh, format for the interview. Um, we get some pretty good ambient noise, but it really makes editing uh, kind of difficult. And for some reason, my, my microphones make these crazy hissing and, and popping noises uh, in coffee shops as opposed to anywhere else. I don't know if uh, maybe there's extra vibration going on from, uh, from the tables or, or, you know... Just, just the, the public space, or, or uh, I'm not sure what it is. So, um, unfortunately, all the other aspects of, of my sound pro have been really coming along, but uh, but that one's killing me. So I, I think I'm gonna have to give it up. Um, maybe maybe I can continue to work on it. Um, hey, Holden, Dexter, come here. I'm on, I'm just gonna get uh, the little guys to say goodbye. Maybe I don't, I don't. Maybe they're not listening to me. Holden, come here. Can you say Happy New Year? Happy New Year. One more time. You ready? Happy New Year. Thanks, buddy. Good night. Yes, you want to say Happy New Year? Come here. Say Happy New Year. Hug. Oh, that's a great hug. Say Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. That's a microphone. Say bye-bye. Hey, Dad, Dad.